Welcome to the Oxford University Undergraduate Law Journal Podcast, where we discuss the law and its relationships with our society and its implications on our everyday lives. I'm Chun. I'm Dorothea. And we are your podcast editors. Welcome everyone to our newest episode. We hope that you enjoyed the Easter vacation and that you are ready for some more engaging legal discussion. My name is Chen Ji. I am a jurisprudence with law studies in Europe, third year undergraduate. I am currently on my year abroad at the University of Bonn in Germany. I belong to New College. My name is Dorothea Oyatunde and I'm a first year law student at St John's College. We are delighted to be your new podcast editors. Today we will be discussing quite a serious issue and I would like to issue a trigger warning here that we will be discussing domestic abuse, domestic violence and also abuse and violence to children. On a brighter note, we are joined by Dr Sarah Singh, who will be speaking to us on the criminal law treatment of mothers of abused children. Sarah, welcome to the podcast and thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's really great to hear that you think this topic will be of interest. It's really fantastic to have you here. Sarah completed her PhD thesis on this topic. Her perspective has been published in the Social and Legal Studies International Journal and the Feminist Legal Studies Journal. She currently researches and lectures at the University of Liverpool Law School. Sarah, much of your research has focused on Section 5 of the Domestic Violence, Crime and Victims Act 2004. Perhaps you could start by explaining to us what this provision does. Yes, of course. So thank you. So first, to put this into context, the unexplained death of a child, whilst obviously tragic, has always proven quite legally problematic. So this is firstly because the existence of sudden infant death syndrome means that in very young children, it's often near impossible for even the most skilled pathologist to determine whether the child was asphyxiated or died of natural causes. Even where it's clear that a child has died of non-accidental injury and more than one adult is present, if neither party confesses or incriminates the other party, it can be impossible to determine which of the child's parents or carers is responsible for inflicting the injury. So these cases really serve to highlight the tension between the desire to punish those who abuse children, whilst obviously attempting to avoid inadvertently punishing a grieving parent or carer who played no part in the abuse. So prior to the introduction of Section 5, which we're obviously going to go on to discuss, criminal provisions dealing with child abuse and non-accidental child death really existed on the basis of commission and omission offences. 
essentially prosecutions depended on the police being able to establish which defendant was the active abuser so who'd actually inflicted the harm resulting in the injury or non-accidental death and which party or parties had been passive in failing to prevent that harm so in such circumstances prior to section 5 the active abuser could be charged with a homicide offence or child cruelty depending on the severity of the harm inflicted and the passive abuser could be charged with cruelty either by omission or neglect offences. The problem was, however, how to proceed in cases where the police could not determine who from a pool of defendants had actively caused the harm and who had been passive in allowing the abuse to continue. And I should just say in these terms of active and passive, I don't particularly like them. They're not my preferred terms. So I don't think actually many are passive. They're just the kind of accepted terms of art. So occasionally, prior to Section 5, in these circumstances, both defendants were prosecuted by inferring a joint enterprise. However, the prosecution could only pursue this strategy if both parents admitted that they were actually present when the child had been injured, but they wouldn't say which one of them had inflicted the harm. So this meant, as in a lot of contexts, the inference of joint enterprise carried a high risk of carriage of justice. And this is addressed in a really key case called Lane and Lane. So this case concerned a child who died as a result of a single blow to her head. And the child's mother and stepfather both denied responsibility for a death and neither parent would testify against one another and there was no evidence to indicate which one of them was culpable so initially both defendants were found guilty of manslaughter but they appealed to the court of appeal and the court of appeal held that in these circumstances because the cps couldn't prove which defendant had inflicted the harm or that they were both even present at the time the child was injured, then the trial could not proceed beyond the prosecution's arguments. And that resulted in the finding of no case to answer. And then obviously, because that's a court of appeal judgment, it's precedent, so it was applied in many subsequent cases with similar facts, meaning that they weren't proceeding beyond the prosecution's initial arguments. So this lack of successful prosecutions arising from a number of child deaths sparked massive outrage, as you can imagine, amongst the general public and also amongst child protection groups and most notably the NSPCC. And they undertook a study and they found that on average, more than three children a week were killed or seriously injured by a parent or carer. And what was sort of most damning about the report is that it revealed that only 29% of these cases went to trial and of that 29%, only 27% resulted in conviction. So this led them to essentially say that parents were quite literally getting away with murder. So this report obviously kind of helped bolster pressure on the government and also it was at a time when New Labour were undertaking a review of the criminal law. So this pressure in the public opinion as well led to the Law Commission to undertake a consultation in an attempt to essentially review substantive and procedural reforms that could try and remedy that lacuna left by Lane and Lane. So the key legacy of this process is this introduction of Section 5. So Section 5 of the Domestic Violence Crime and Victims Act introduces an offence of causing or allowing a child or vulnerable adult to die 
And then this was later amended in 2012 to encompass circumstances where the victim survives, notwithstanding they've suffered significant harm. So essentially, this offence is to deal with that lane and lane problem. It allows a means of prosecution when it's impossible to distinguish the active and passive abuser. But it also criminalises any member of the household who has frequent contact with the child or vulnerable adult and who either caused the death or serious harm or those who fail to take reasonable steps to protect the child from the risk of significant harm or death which they foresaw or ought to have foreseen. It criminalises those who actively cause harm but also those who fail to protect children from harm. And section five is made all the more potent by section six. So section six makes two major procedural amendments when one of the co-defendants has been charged with murder or manslaughter. So first, section six allows for the postponement of whether there is a case to answer until after the end of the defence's case. So that's a major departure from previous procedure and it really directly deals with those prosecutorial problems that we just talked about in Lane and Lane. The second major procedural change is that Section 6.2 allows the jury to draw negative inferences from a defendant's silence. So if a defendant fails to give an account how the child or vulnerable adult was harmed, then negative inferences can be drawn from this refusal to account. Thanks very much for explaining, Sarah. Which problems have you found with this statutory provision and how it has been applied in the courts? In your research, you also discuss the philosophical influences on the legislation and the courtroom discourse. Which problems do you think evidence these philosophical influences? Okay, thank you. I'm going to focus on the ways that this particular offence, Section 5, derives from and perpetuates traditional gendered constructs of the ideal mother. And this is really linked to traditional constructs of traditional families, as discussed in the earlier podcast episode with Professor Chowdhury and Taylor. So historically, as documented by feminists such as Elizabeth Badinter, Influential 18th century philosophers, so for example, Rousseau, as well as more contemporary psychologists such as Bowlby, have been really instrumental in positioning mothers as responsible for the welfare of both children and then ultimately of the welfare of society as a whole. So bringing that up to the modern day, the impact of neoliberal privatisation of care has also really compounded this and led to what Hayes calls intensive mothering. And this really re-emphasises the demand for absolute maternal omnipresence, so the fact that mothers should be there all the time and see everything, and also selflessness, so utter, complete selflessness. And these conventional constructs of motherhood have led to what Lapierre calls a deficit model of motherhood. So what that means is, if anything undesirable happens to a child, the mother is presumed in some way culpable. And we can see this culture is really pervasive. In a lot of the cases that I'm going to talk about in this podcast, what we see here is women being blamed for the actions of men and the cultural and legal focus 
is often on the woman's failure to stop the violence, to prevent it, rather than the infliction of harm itself. And you see that in cases, as we'll discuss, you also see it in media responses to these crimes. When I teach this subject to my own student, we'll talk about really horrible cases like the baby P case. And again, students remember his mother's name much more readily than they remember the man's name, Stephen Barker, who did actually inflict a lot of the abuse. And a lot of that is just because the media really focused on her and continue actually to focus on her. So if we look at the key elements of this offence, so to be convicted of the offence, a defendant either has to have actively caused harm to a child or vulnerable adult, or they have to have foresaw or ought to have foreseen a serious risk of harm to the victim, and they have to have failed to take reasonable steps to prevent it. So if we look at this idea of foreseeability first, and we try and unpack that, when we look specifically at the plight of abused mothers, this is a particularly troubling aspect. So this idea that they have to have known or ought to have known of the risk of serious physical harm. And in this context, prosecutorial narratives are really revealing about these socio-legal constructs of motherhood and risk. And the minute we talk about whether a, for, a defendant foresaw something or ought to have foreseen something, by using that word ought, we obviously invite in constructs of the ideal mother. So a defendant's foresight of risk in this context has an objective and a subjective element. So this means the jury are asked to assess the defendant's actual calculation of risk, and then they're to decide if it aligns with a reasonable person's calculation of risk in that context. Bringing in a subjective element led some academics who really welcomed the introduction of this offence to really downplay concerns over the criminalisation of abused women. Some argue that if a woman's assessment of risk was influenced by having experienced domestic abuse, she wouldn't be convicted. She wouldn't have been found to be aware of the risk. Essentially, the reality of this offence could not be any more different. And part of that is because, you know, as a lot of feminist criminologists have acknowledged, so people like Sandra Walcott and Betsy Stanko, risk is a really gendered concept. And it's a gendered concept that's often used to responsibilize women. So whilst foreseeability of harm appears gender neutral, like a lot of law, in practice, gendered expectations of care render it anything but gender neutral. So in Anglo-American jurisdictions, due to the masculinization of risk, risk avoidance is essentially critical to performance of femininity and motherhood. So this means it's not only women's responsibility to care for children, it's also women's responsibility to manage and prevent male violence. So mothers who are charged under Section 5 have kind of simultaneously failed as women in that they've failed to manage or avoid the risk of male violence. And they've also failed as mothers because they haven't been omnipresent and haven't been able to ensure their child's welfare at all times. So evidence suggests that the general public find women more culpable for failing to protect their children if they have experienced violence. So rather than that fostering sympathy, it actually increases their culpability. 
And so this is really reflected in how these cases play out. In these cases, the prosecutors actually sometimes argue that the more frequent or severe abuse suffered by the mother, the more she ought to have foreseen the risk of harm. Contrary to what academics thought, perhaps when this was first introduced, any violence against the mother can be then used against the mother to prove that they knew that their co-defendant was violent and therefore to say they ought to have known that there was a risk to the child. And also there's general kind of psychological research that uh, suggests that culturally mother blaming is so pervasive that victims of domestic abuse are no less likely to blame a mother for allowing her child to come to harm than women who've never experienced intimate partner violence. So it's a really pervasive culture. It does play to juries, so it can be used as a successful prosecutorial tactic. And you know, this has been seen in several cases. So for example, the case of Rigby and Smedley. So Smedley had been abused by her partner. She'd been hit while she was pregnant. He'd headbutted her in public. He'd actually been arrested after assaulting her. And she'd said to her midwife, as she was pregnant at the time, that she thought her partner would kill her. And she was absent when he fatally attacked her son. But it was said that, you know, she ought to have foreseen that risk of harm because of all the assaults that she'd actually suffered. That was used to kind of bolster that limb of foreseeability. Similarly, in the case of Green and Critchley, there was some evidence of intimate partner abuse. And that was used to say that if Critchley knew that Green was violent towards her, then she should have automatically assumed that he would be violent towards their children. So foreseeability is, is a key gendered issue because of all those issues that I've just highlighted. The second thing, so not only does the defendant have to have foreseen or ought to have foreseen a risk of harm, they also have to have failed to take reasonable steps to prevent it. When this offence was being introduced, again, in terms of the worries about abused women, it was thought hopefully they'll be acquitted at this stage because they'll be found that they did take reasonable steps. However, again, because they are mothers and we have this huge pervasive culture of idealised motherhood and this intensive mothering, that's not really how things play out. So rather than being judged by a reasonable person standard, they're being judged as the ideal mother rather than the reasonable person. Again, this is a qualified objective test and the leading authority is the case of calm. And this sets out how reasonable steps is to be interpreted. And this case makes it really clear that special consideration should be given in situations where defendants are themselves victims of abuse. And that the impact of domestic abuse will be taken into account when deciding whether a defendant took reasonable steps to protect the victim. In some cases, the jury won't even be aware that there's domestic abuse between the partners because her defence might have chosen for that to be left out. Obviously, his defence aren't going to want that to, to really be discussed in open court. But her defence might also jointly petition for that because the violence against her might be used to prove foreseeability. So it could be that the jury never even hear about this history of domestic abuse. And therefore, if they don't hear about it, it can't be taken into account when we look at whether somebody took reasonable steps or not. 
In their guidance on whether on when to prosecute, the CPS give a whole spectrum of things that somebody might do that might constitute reasonable steps. And it goes from what we might see as quite minimal things. So it says a defendant might have explained their concerns to a health visitor or they might ring a helpline to essentially that they should leave the partner. Leaving the partner is obviously seen in these kind of contexts as being the preferable or the most preferable step that somebody can take to protect a child. This is kind of ignorant of all the barriers there are to leaving abusive relationships. And also leaving an abusive relationship is the most dangerous time for both women and for children. So even aside from domestic abuse, when we look at discussions of reasonable steps in this context, what we really see is it's very revealing in terms of maternal ideology and the good mother of legal discourse. So what we really see is that essentially prosecutorial narratives will draw on a lot to distance women from the ideal selfless mother. So, for example, you see vanity being used to prove that somebody isn't selfless. You see old archaic tropes of promiscuity being drawn upon and also paid employment. So several of these cases involve situations where women were actually at work when their child was fatally attacked. They're treated as irresponsible and selfish for not being there. But there are cases like Edge, where essentially, in a nutshell, the mother was convicted of murder and the child had a whole catalogue of injuries that had been caused over a really long period of time. And the father was acquitted of failing to protect him. And the the narrative that really played to the jury was that because he worked as a taxi driver and he did work around the house, he didn't have the advantage of school teachers who were with his son six hours a day. So again, we see that really gendered old fashioned notion of a mother who's in work and can't protect her child is in some way negligent and failing, but a father isn't expected to know about a catalogue of injuries with a child because he's earning the daily bread. So essentially, this crime of omission is a bit too easily proven when mothers are expected to be omnipresent and are assumed responsible for every aspect of childcare and child safety. That's very insightful, your answer to the question. Thank you, Sarah. Some would argue that the provision is necessary because there is the problem of no prosecution at all in some cases when it cannot be established which adults in a household caused harm or death to the child. What would you say about that? Obviously, the NSPCC really did highlight highlight a problem. There did obviously need to be a means of prosecution where you've got a pool of perpetrators and there's absolutely no evidence to indicate who actively inflicted the abuse and who failed to stop it. And it does fill that gap and it it fulfills a a useful role in that respect, a, a much needed means of prosecution. However, my issue is a little bit with this being used to criminalise these so-called passive abusers, those who have failed to prevent the harm. And and that's known from the outset. It's very clear from the police evidence and then the charges as well. 
I think it's important that we remember that actually there's always been a suite of offences that so-called passive abusers could be charged with. There's a whole myriad of child cruelty offences that include some quite specific things like failure to summon medical attention. So those offences do exist. There's no splitting of causing or allowing the death of a child. It's one offence. It can't be split. And it's also a homicide offence. The difference between being tried and convicted of a child cruelty offence compared to a homicide offence is enormous. And that has huge repercussions in terms of sentencing. The maximum sentences for this offence used to be if the victim survived, it was 10 years and if they died it was 14. However, this is set to be increased under the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill. If that passes, then it's proposed that sentences are raised to 14 years for serious injury and life if the victim dies. So essentially there's huge repercussions of this. My argument is in circumstances where actually you do know who the active abuser has been, this is really unnecessary and is disproportionately criminalising women who are themselves quite often subjected to domestic abuse. I think there's a 79% correlation between child abuse and intimate partner abuse. So just looking at that statistic, it's likely that a lot of women who are being criminalised under this offence for failing to protect their children will themselves be victims of domestic abuse. I can see the distinction that you are getting at and the distinctions which are lacking in the provision. Some mothers might argue it is a mother's duty to protect their children from all potential serious harm. They might say your argument is rather based on feminist ideology rather than evidence or what is needed in practice. How would you respond to this assertion? As a feminist, it's really important that I do acknowledge my own influences and biases. Feminist engagement with motherhood has been quite fraught, but I think it's really important that we make the distinction between women's experiences of motherhood, so women's real lived experiences of motherhood and their relationship with their children, a motherhood as ideology, as a historical, quite patriarchal, social, political and legal institution. So it's the latter I'm really focusing on here. I'm critiquing the traditional construction of motherhood and how this influences legal responses to motherhood. Certainly not women's actual lived relationships with their children. The relationship between feminism and motherhood has been quite brought in periods. Initially, feminists were a bit hesitant to address motherhood. Some of that was seen as undermining sameness arguments. So if you look at first wave feminism, the idea that women should be treated equally to men because they're the same as men, and really trying to focus on sameness in order to gain rights. Motherhood was even problematic in terms of second wave feminism because that focused on trying to divorce gender and sex. And at that time, it was thought that pregnancy posed a bit of a challenge to that. And as a result, children and motherhood were either kind of trivialised and ignored or denigrated as necessarily diminishing women's agency and thus being quite inherently problematic. 
But this ambivalence to motherhood started to change around the mid to late 20th century. And you've got feminists like Frieden, Chodoro, Rich and Badinter, who really bring the mother-child relationship to the fore. Challenging constructs of motherhood are really key to challenging other feminist concepts like the public-private divide. And I think it's really important that we remember the messages of people like Oakley, Smart and Feynman. Motherhood doesn't undermine women's liberation, but these ideological constructs certainly can because they play into the privatisation and also the feminisation of care. But I guess my key issue here is mothers do do an awful lot. They act in so many ways to protect their children in these cases. And actually, because of those issues around foreseeability and reasonable steps, those whole myriad of ways that, that they've tried to protect their children aren't really recognised. Some women in these cases have been at work when their child was attacked. The case I'm thinking of, actually, that woman lived such a difficult life. She had two children and she essentially managed to live a life where those children were never, ever left alone with their father. They were with her, or or they were at daycare, or they were with her mum. And essentially, the incident happened when she'd fallen into arrears with the nursery bill, and the children had to be taken out of nursery. At that point, her mother's child was ill, so they couldn't go to their grandma. That woman had gone to such lengths, such unbelievable lengths to keep her children safe. And none of that was really credited. It's the one instance where she couldn't be there and she couldn't protect them that's really picked up on. There were lots of these narratives about quite irrelevant, irrelevant things like promiscuity that we use to construct her as being selfish and feckless. When actually, if you heard the day-to-day of her life, she'd actually gone to quite extreme lengths to protect those children. So essentially, the law needs to recognise all of the things that women in these cases do do to try and protect their children. And obviously, you know, that doesn't cover all cases. Obviously, both partners might actually complicit in the abuse. And obviously, this offence works well for that. But those aren't the cases I'm talking about. Essentially, there are lots of women who actually do a lot to try and protect their children. Yes, I think that this distinction is also very worth keeping in mind. It could be said that the traditional ideology of womanhood and motherhood actually is ideology. And unlike at least some feminists have attempted to do, does not reflect the lived experiences of mothers. My next question is, are vulnerabilities being taken into account by the courts? In some ways, you know, my my research today is really focused on vulnerable, well, children as victims. But I think it is really interesting that a vulnerable adult can also be a victim. The, The debates around who is a vulnerable adult when this was being drafted are quite interesting and there's a huge assumption that vulnerability can always be attributed to age so that children are always vulnerable on account of their age essentially you can tell particularly in the house of commons that everyone sees vulnerability as being something that's only suffered when you're very young or very elderly but in its final form the definition of vulnerable adult is quite interesting 
So it was left really broadly defined as being caused by old age, physical disability, or another reason. And that other reason is really interesting. And it's been discussed at some length in the cases of Khan and Udin. And so they're both quite factually similar cases involving the fatal abuse of adult women by either their husbands or other relatives and in circumstances where extended family members either were complicit in actively perpetrating the abuse or they lived in the household and they failed to intervene in it. And whilst Khan seemed to suggest, the judgment in Khan seemed to suggest that an adult might only be vulnerable if rendered utterly dependent on others, in the Court of Appeal in Udin, the Court of Appeal clarified that all is required is a cause significantly impairing their ability to protect themselves from violence, abuse or neglect. And this is kind of interesting. So if you read these cases, there is no doubt that the victims in both cases were extremely vulnerable. I take no issue with that. But I do think it's quite interesting that what we essentially end up with is kind of a vulnerable victim, culpable mother dyad emerging here, where we see that abused women who are killed are the vulnerable victims of this offence, and this offence can be used to criminalise who fail to protect them. But that this ideology of motherhood and our expectations of mothers mean that mothers always end up on the wrong side of this dyad and they're culpable, they're the, the culpable perpetrator rather than the vulnerable victim. There ends up being a hierarchy of vulnerability where the child's vulnerability cancels out any vulnerability that might be experienced by the mother. And so if you contrast the cases, cases of Khan and Udin with a case like, for example, Walker and Henry, Alistair Walker was convicted of the manslaughter of his three-month-old son, Akil. He died of a non-survivable head injury caused by the shaking or submersion in water. There was lots of evidence of uh, physical abuse towards Hammer Henry, financial abuse, emotional abuse. This included aspects like Walker had broken Henry's jaw in the middle of a street, left her lying in the road. And rather than this being indicative of a context of fear and abuse, again, she was portrayed as selfish and feckless. And she was convicted of Section 5, causing or allowing Akil's death, essentially because she failed to protect him. If we look and compare and contrast those cases, Hannah Henry, if she'd have been killed by Walker in that assault, could have been considered potentially a vulnerable adult if it was thought that the abuse had resulted in psychological or emotional damage. But because he hurt their child, she's not a vulnerable adult. She's a feckless mother who essentially failed to manage her child's vulnerability and her partner's violence and is thus deserving of punishment. So another interesting point on that is that there's a caveat. So you, you have to be 16 to be culpable of the offence unless you're a parent. So if you're a child's parent, you can actually be tried and convicted of this offence under 16. So again, that really reiterates this idea of very young child's vulnerability cancels out that vulnerability that you might experience because you yourself are also a young person. That's really quite startling to think about, actually. Um, you could have a 13-year-old who is 
also a mother, but being portrayed in the court as not at all vulnerable, despite her very young age, for example. Sarah, I would also like to ask you, which legislative amendments and changes in courtroom discourse do you think are needed or would help to address the problems that we have discussed? When this was being drafted, it was quite clear that there was likely to be an impact on abused women. And this led many commentators to argue there should be a specific defence to failure to protect provisions for those who've suffered intimate partner abuse. And this was actually mooted by the House of Lords in their debates. So they proposed an amendment to the initial bill so that the offence would specifically not apply to those who were victims of abuse unless they actively inflicted harm to the child themselves. This was rejected because Parliament thought that that would make the offence essentially unprosecutable. So any attempt to kind of recognise the correlation between child abuse and domestic abuse were rejected on those grounds. So I do think that domestic abuse should mitigate a parent's supposed failure to protect, but I don't think that a specific defence is needed. I think there's lots of issues with trying to bring in a specific defence. So actually, what I favour instead is more progressive CPS policies around this. This is very much needed in situations where it's not clear who actively perpetrated the abuse and who didn't. But I really think there needs to be more nuanced decisions around charging women with Section 5 when it's absolutely known that their partner inflicted the abuse. So if they have been neglectful, then actually there is a suite of offences that can be used. There are child cruelty, neglect offences that can be used in those situations. So that lacuna, you know, highlighted in Lane and Lane did need to be closed and Section 5 does address this. But allowing for the prosecution of abused women and then also Section 6, you know, the inferences from silence, essentially tries to coerce women into testifying against their partner. If you look at the Hansard debates, that's quite clear. The whole idea is that this will make abused women speak. First of all, it was thought that this will make abused women leave their abusive relationships, which shows a total ignorance of all the barriers that exist to leave in abusive relationships and how dangerous that is. But then also the discussions around Section 6, the idea was that if this provision caught abused women, then they would testify against their partners. That would help secure a murder conviction against defendant one, and then they'd be acquitted. And I mean, essentially, I feel like that treats these women like collateral damage in the legal system. And the prosecution of a woman who suffered abuse under a homicide offence is just not appropriate when they know from the outset they didn't harm their child. This idea of charging women and trying to force them to testify against their partner really downplays the impact of being charged with Section 5 on both the woman herself and also any surviving children. The average custodial sentence for women convicted of this offence is 3.7 years. And even if acquitted, acquittal doesn't mean that there are no consequences. There can still be huge consequences. Time spent on remand 
children potentially going into care because of that, issues trying to regain custody of children, even if acquitted, issues around employment. You've been acquitted, but you've been acquitted of a homicide offence. What's known as effective blame in the communities around these offences is really difficult to navigate. So, for example, in one of these cases, the family of the child who died can't visit her grave on milestones like the child's birthday because the community are remembering the child. And so the family actually can't go and visit that grave. And there have been really awful situations where a woman who was actually acquitted of Section 5 took her own life because of once she went back into a community, there were so many taunts about her being a baby killer. Acquittal doesn't mean there are no consequences, and I think that's really important for us to remember. Yes, I can see that perhaps we really need to go back to the goals and objectives of the legislative provision. Sarah, what do you think the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic and perhaps the lockdowns have been on this problem? Unfortunately, really predictably terrible. Obviously, in the pandemic, we saw domestic abuse rates really shoot up. As I've said before, there is a correlation between domestic abuse and child abuse. And then there is obviously the impact on the criminal justice system. Time on remands increased because of the COVID pandemic. Obviously, there are staff shortages in prisons and courts, which all affect the way cases are heard. During the pandemic, it was really difficult for defendants to maintain contact with any surviving children. So there were periods of the pandemic where no visits to prisons at all for anybody. Even when that started to lift, there were some examples of prisons only allowing over 10s to visit. So if, so if a defendant had much younger children, they still weren't allowed to go. There are issues that we're seeing as we come out of the pandemic, and particularly the cost of living crisis is really consolidating these problems. So things like lack of social housing, lack of funding for refugees, problems around the payment of universal credit, so the fact that it's paid to one partner only, and also that that temporary £20 uplift has now stopped. The cost of living crisis will sadly have an impact on the levels of child and intimate partner abuse and will also exacerbate financial barriers to leaving abusive relationships. So I think it's estimated that about 90% of intimate partner abuse victims suffer financial abuse. So this is likely to have a really big impact. And financial tensions and lack of financial resources is a motif that I found in a lot of cases pre-pandemic. Defendants lacking really basic resources, you're not having the money to put on their electricity meter as they're having no electricity, not having the money to pay for childcare, being in arrears with childcare bills, not having the money for things like nappies. Given that that was the situation in cases that were heard quite a few years ago now. The impact of the pandemic and the cost of living crisis are likely to make this situation, unfortunately, much worse. Yes, I can imagine the situation that you are painting. Sarah, thank you very much 
for discussing your research and perspective with us. Considering how epidemic domestic violence is in the UK, the right balance and approach is very thought-provoking and so important to think about. It could be said there should be no impunity for those who inflict harm or death on children, but we do need to look carefully at whether we are punishing the abusers or carers who are themselves vulnerable or being abused. Thank you and goodbye to Dr. Sarah Singh and to our listeners for listening to our discussion. You have been listening to Dr. Sarah Singh and Chen discussing the criminalization of abused mothers for harm and abuse of children inflicted by others. For more information, discussion and research on this topic, do see the podcast section of the Oxford Undergraduate Law Journal website. For more discussions on the law, on other legal topics, do see the other episodes of our podcast and also look out for upcoming episodes. Thank you and goodbye.